Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, great to see you. I was enjoying the interaction, and then uh, one of these really aggressive cameramen screamed. Did you hear him scream? Yeah, yeah. I thought I was back home for a second. Not, nice to see everybody. Hey, a couple things you may want to give some thought to. Here is one, and uh, wonderful Brian just brought it to my attention, and he's right. Um, we have a bazillion wonderful kids who come here for ministry, many of whom discover the Lord during these formative years, and we are really in need of folks willing uh, to serve the kids, to teach them and serve in other capacities in the children's ministry. This being the case, uh, if you would be willing to pray about whether that's something God would have you do, and if the answer is yes, all you have to do is call the church, ask for the children's ministry. Amy is the lady in charge, and there are others who assist. And you could just express an interest. You don't have to commit prematurely. You may want to find out from her what is involved, what's the time commitment, what special skills are involved, and then you could invest your life in younger ones who during this very challenging day really, really need to know the Lord and really need to know adults who know the Lord. So uh, big need in the children's ministry. Let me encourage you to try it on for size. One other thing, I really don't know if you're aware of this, but we're on the verge of a presidential election. Has anyone told you? Because you shouldn't be unaware of this. It's kind of a big secret. And here's the deal. Uh, in order to vote in it, which every Christian ought to be encouraged to do, you have to be duly registered. So to make sure you are, we have two really wonderful ladies who are here tonight to provide that opportunity to make sure you are appropriately registered. And that is Cookie Galger and Pam Ritchie, and they're setting up out there in the foyer. Now, I'm told the deadline for proper registration is October the 5th, and if you have changed your residence, something as simple as that, in this last year, uh, you're not duly registered. You have to update that data. That's just the way it is. So to make it easy for you, these two wonderful ladies are setting up in the foyer and give it some thought uh, uh, before you leave just to make sure you're eligible to vote in this very critical, uh, very important election. Uh, that announcement fits our series, as you know, we've been speaking about the government, not from my perspective of yours, but uh, we've been trying to search the scriptures to see what the Bible has to say about government. And so uh, last week we spoke about uh, what the government owes us. And tonight I would like for us to uh, entertain this particular uh, question. What do we owe the government? What's our responsibility as Christian citizens even to a secular human uh, government? And so uh, I want to tell you, I believe it's three things that we owe the government. And the first is mentioned quite clearly in this pretty key verse, Romans 13. Who wrote it, by the way? 
Yeah, Paul wrote it, absolutely. And uh, this is what he says, every person, so every in any language from Greek to English simply means that. Every uh, person is to be, I don't like this next word, and I don't think you do either, is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Why? Well, Paul anticipates us asking the question and supplies the answer. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, the first thing we owe the government is subjection or submission to its authority. This text of Scripture makes this very, very clear. So government is an institution established by God, not my opinion. That's what we just read here in Romans 13:1. So just as God established the institution of the family, just as God established the institution of the church, so too he established the institute of a government. And just as we Christians are called upon to render the right response to the church and to the family, so too we are obligated to render the right response to the government. And the right response to the government is this, submission to its authority. Again, I did not make that up, just reading what the text says. Now that raises a lot of questions, does it not? For instance, uh, what question comes into your mind, even as you look to this little phrase on the screens? Just yell it out. It's just us. <laughs> any questions about this? Can you anticipate any problems with it? Okay, good. I'll tell you the right answers then. Look, um, how do you do this? How do you submit to a government that is significantly evil, ungodly, and corrupt? Well, we'll answer it in a second, but first let me tell you, when this verse was written, Romans 13, 1, uh, the government was all those things, evil, corrupt, and ungodly. In fact, the government had a policy in which it authorized and promoted slavery. Uh, other humans considered to be chattel or property. In fact, in the Roman Empire, when Paul wrote Romans 13:1, uh, there were 10 million folks who were enslaved in the Roman Empire. That accounted to one-third of the entire population. So when Paul wrote this, everyone is to be in subjection to governing authorities. He didn't do it in the atmosphere of a godly a government. It was quite evil. In fact, in addition, in Paul's day, the emperor, many emperors, considered themselves to be God-like gods, requiring that the citizenry would bow down to them in worship in light of their um, imagined divinity. Uh, so the question that comes to my mind is, what do you mean, Paul? Were the Christians in that day supposed to subject themselves and submit to godless emperors claiming to be God? How does it work out? 
Furthermore, in that day, minority groups were severely persecuted. And one of the uh, primary minority groups to fall under the heavy hand of the Roman emperor were, what people group would you guess? Christians. And yet Paul, fully aware of current events in his day, uh, fully aware of that, still wrote under inspiration, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. But again, if the government requires something of us that is blatantly contrary to the will of God, do we still owe the government submission? Now, we're Americans, so let's vote. How many people here, show of hands, nobody will be called upon, how many people here think that even if the government requires something of us, contrary to the will of God, we owe it submission? Everyone who thinks so, would you raise your hand? Wow, easy to count. And, and how many here think, no, if the government requires something of us, Contrary to the will of God, we do not owe it submission. If you think that, would you raise your hand? So, so there you go, uh, the vast majority. So uh, let me tell you what the answer is to the question. If government requires something of us that is contrary to the will of God, do we still owe the government submission? The answer is yes, we do. So uh, let me explain. <laughs> Though we owe the government unconditional submission, we do not owe the government unconditional obedience. Now, you may be thinking I'm playing with words here, but I'm not. Submission and obedience may overlap, but they're really distinctly different things. Paul did not say we have an absolute obligation to obey all governmental requirements, laws, and policies. He simply said, we have an absolute obligation to unconditionally submit to the government. Now, how do you do that? How could you say you're living in submission to government when, in fact, you may be choosing to disobey one of the governmental laws or imperatives? I'll tell you how. Submission is primarily an attitude of the heart. Here, then, is how a very sincere, respectful uh, Christian could, on the one hand, choose to disobey the government, civil disobedience, that would be called, and yet at the same time be in compliance with Romans 13.1. You could look the government in the eye and you could say, government to whom I have and owe respect because I realize your authority is bequeathed to you uh, by sovereign God. We read that in 13.1, Romans 13.1. Uh, God is the one who assigns authority. So we could say, government, I respect your authority knowing that ultimately it emanates from the highest authority, almighty God. However, government, you are now requiring, requiring of me that I do something I believe to be contrary to the will of God. And when it comes down to the two, 
submitting to or, or obeying your will or God's, I must obey God rather than man. Therefore, government, I'm going to disobey you respectfully and I will not resist the consequences thereof. Therefore, if you need to arrest me or penalize me in some other way, if you need to imprison me, though I don't think it's uh, uh, legitimate and appropriate, I'm going to submit to it because I recognize your authority. Can you see what I'm getting at, folks? There's a difference between, uh, dis between obedience and submission. If you unconditionally obey the government... You are putting government in the place of God. If you refuse to submit respectfully to government, you are in violation of Romans chapter 13, verse 1. So, when a Christian citizen cannot in clear conscience obey the government, he can still, he or she can still demonstrate a submissive spirit to it. Folks, we Christians are on the verge of being really insolent with reference to the institution of government, failing to remember all government is God's idea. And in our insolence, we are victimizing our children and grandchildren who are increasingly losing proper respect for authority. Uh, folks, be careful. A good Christian citizen does not owe the government unconditional obedience. It does owe the government, that Christian citizen, unconditional submission. Now, I know there's lots of questions in your mind. Let me um, tell you next week, Lord willing, although I'm praying for the rapture before then, we will talk about civil disobedience. Tonight, we're talking about what we owe the government Next week, I'd like to chat with you about what we don't owe the government. I just told you we don't owe the government absolute unconditional obedience, which leads to the question, well, then, under what conditions can we disobey the government? I'll show you next week. There are those, and the Scripture is pretty clear about it. So there is no excuse for insubordination. Authority is to be respected, but... Though the institution of government is to be respected, Scripture does not allow us to obey every policy of government. Now, let me move from the government in a generic sense to those who govern, to various governmental leaders. How does all this apply? So I understand we must respect the institution of government, but what about certain individuals in government who are corrupt or otherwise deficient in various character areas? What if they've crossed sexual lines? What if they lie? What if they have uh, misappropriated funds and all the rest? What do we do in that case? I think here's the answer. It is not the moral standing or character of a government official we are to respect. It is the position he or she occupies. Can you see the difference there? So Paul demonstrated this quite graphically in the manner in which he, even when under pressure and trial, responded to the Roman 
governmental officials in his day, one of whom was a fellow named Felix. Felix was, he was not a good guy. He was described, in fact, by the historian Tacitus as one who thought he could do any evil act with impunity and as one who indulged in every kind of barbarity and lust. Felix obligated Paul to come before him, make a defense for this Jesus whom Paul was following. And Paul's response in Acts 24.10 is quite interesting. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Can you see the respectful, submissive spirit behind Paul's words? I don't think he had cause to respect Felix's character and, his, and that he was taking the moral high ground, he was, however, obligated to respect the position even one such as Felix occupied. Uh, furthermore, there was a fellow named uh, King Herod, in this case Agrippa. Lots of Herods in the Bible. This particular one, King Herod Agrippa, also summoned Paul to make a defense. He's the one who committed incest. So we read in the New Testament. Notice the respect Paul gave even him. Acts 26, verses 2 and 3. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, Paul said, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. Can you see the submissive spirit? Can you see the respect shown a person quite deficient in his character? On another occasion, Paul was obligated to go before an idol-worshiping governor named Festus. And notice how Paul addressed him in Acts 26 25. Paul said, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. Did you watch the debate last night? I mean, like millions of people around the world did. I hope I'm not overstepping my ground to tell you it was very discouraging to me. You know what I thought? I wouldn't want my grandchildren to be watching it. I'm taking no side. I thought it was disgraceful. I thought it was disrespectful on both sides. <clears throat> when you call a sitting president a clown, when you say, shut up, stupid, and when the president so interrupts his opponent that his opponent can't even make a coherent, complete sentence, it's disrespectful. So, so what do you do? Uh, don't let it bring us down. We're Christian citizens. We must show respect to the institution of government. It's God-ordained. And to those in positions of governmental authority. We can distinguish ourselves as being salt and light by showing respect. When my uh, three boys were young... 
I would not ever allow them to refer to whomever the president was merely by his last name. Never. It was always president so and so. Why? Whether I respect whoever was the president or not at the time, I must respect the office. And I didn't want to put a curse on my kids to show them you can be disrespectful to authority. You cannot. We have to submit to authority. So the first thing we owe the government is this, submission. And now it's getting worse, folks. If you came to be encouraged, oh, man, you came to the wrong place. These are our obligations. First is submission. Here's the second, taxation. Uh, not my words. Here it is. Romans 13, verse 6, the same author, Paul, under inspiration. For because of this, you also, there it is, pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing, pay taxes. It's our second responsibility to government. Again, questions about this loom large. For instance, uh, what if the taxes we're required to pay go for ungodly uh, purposes? What in that case is the responsibility of the Christian citizen? First, before we answer, let me remind you that when Paul wrote this, a fellow named Tiberius Caesar was on the throne. He was the emperor of Rome, and he was an extremely unrighteous man whose coffers, I assure you, were not being used primarily for godly humanitarian purposes. And yet even in that governmental atmosphere, Paul issues that it, this imperative, pay your taxes. Undoubtedly, a good percentage of the taxes Tiberius Caesar collected were spent on ungodly purposes. Now, some people think it's legitimate, therefore, to withhold a certain portion of your taxes. In fact, uh, tell you a little bit of a humorous story. I don't know if it's true, but it could be. A person sent a letter to the IRS saying, I didn't pay the taxes I should have this past year, and I've been up unable to sleep because of it. Therefore, enclosed is a check for $150. If I still have trouble sleeping, I'll send the rest some other time. <laughs> so you can't do that. I think about the illogic of it. If you choose to withhold a portion of your taxes, uh, uh, that will not prevent <laughs> the portion you send in from going to ungodly purposes. The only way you can guarantee that is to withhold the full amount of your tax obligation to ensure it won't be misused. But that would be a clear violation of the text we just read, Romans chapter 13, verse 6. And if you did that, you decided to withhold a percentage of your taxes from the government because some goes to ungodly purposes, you would, in the process of so doing, you would be also withholding your money from good and legitimate expenditures like the military and law enforcement. Folks, defunding. <laughs> The first line of protection in our society is suicide. It is anarchy. Uh, it is a uh, 
slap in the face, not of those in law enforcement. No, 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 it's much worse. It's a slap in the face of Almighty God, who as an arm of the government has appointed law enforcement people to protect the citizenry, even going so far as to entrust to them what's called the power of the sword, which means the capacity, if need be, to invoke the ultimate penalty. You protect the lives of citizens from other citizens who wish to take their lives. You take away that first line of contact and we have chaos. Now that's not some kind of overdramatic threat. Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, Chicago, Illinois, Kenosha, Wisconsin, Austin, Texas, and on and on and on. Look at the results of defunding law enforcement. Big mistake. So our responsibility to the payment of taxes is pretty clearly stated in Scripture. Here's another verse. In fact, the very next one. Romans 13, 7, render to all what is due them. Tax, to whom taxes due. Custom, to whom custom. Fear, to whom fear. Honor, to whom honor. So, so render to all what is due them. Does that sound in any way familiar? Paul's words here. Does that remind you of the words of someone greater than Paul? The Lord Jesus. Paul learned from Rabbi Jesus pretty well. In Matthew chapter 12, for instance, something happened. A group of folks, Pharisees, along with representatives of King Herod, those two people groups hated each other. But their greater hatred for King Jesus gave them something in common. So those two people groups got together uh, the intent being to entrap this radical rabbi Jesus. And so they said, this is, this is Mark 12, verses 13 and on. They said, Rabbi, we know you're truthful, not partial. We know you teach the way of God. Is it lawful, therefore, to pay tax to Caesar? Here's how they think they have him. Look, if he says, yes, it is lawful to pay tax to Caesar, then he will alienate many in the crowd who despised the Roman occupiers of the day. But if he said, no, it's not lawful to pay tax for Caesar, he would be guilty of sedition against the government. So these humanly wise groups thought they had the Lord, but they didn't. And so he said, this is what he said, Bring me a denarius. Oops. Bring me this that you see up there on the screen. That's an actual ancient denarius. It was a coin, silver coin. The value of it is about 25 cents in our money. So they brought this denarius to Rabbi Jesus, and he asked, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And you can see that is an inscription of Julius Caesar. So he then said to them these marvelously potent words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God 
the things that are God's. Can you see how Paul's teaching is simply a reflection of the Lord's earlier teaching? So in this concise and simple statement, the Lord makes clear what we owe the government. It's simple. Render to the government what is its due. Caesar, the government leader, his image is on the coin. Therefore, render to him what bears his image. Money. Tax revenue. Render it, good Christian citizen. Render it even to Caesar. The secular state, you see, has a legitimate function and can require things like taxation of its citizens. Render it, therefore. Don't withhold tax from the government. Even when the government is controlled by a man who thinks he's a god. Still, the obligation of a good Christian citizen is taxation. And just as we must render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, so we must render to God the things that are God's. So Caesar has his image on the coin, but God has his image on who? Us. Folks, we've been created in the image of God. I'm not a rock or a tree, neither are you. What distinguishes us from any other living thing is that God has made us to be in his own image. Caesar's image is on a coin. Give it to him. God's image is on us. Give him everything. Give Caesar something. Give God everything. Can you see? In that simple teaching, the Lord is um, persuading us of the need for limited government. Our responsibility to government is not absolute and unlimited. Render to Caesar what's his, taxation. But don't forget God whose image is on you. We owe Caesar something, but not everything. We owe God everything. Therefore, if the two are ever in conflict with one another, we must obey God rather than Caesar. So allegiance to God must take precedence over allegiance to government even to American government, which we love. We like our form of government, democracy, and all the rest. Nonetheless, if you are a citizen of heaven, your primary allegiance must be to Almighty God, not to our government. Now, there is one final thing I believe we owe the government to review. We owe the government submission. We owe the government taxation. And we owe the uh, government intercession intercession prayer where do we get this how about this passage first timothy first of all then i urge that entreaties and prayers petitions and thanksgivings four words different kinds of prayer every kind of prayer i urge that every kind of prayer be made for whom on behalf of all men for kings they're singled out and all who are in authority, why? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Why is this emphasized? It's because prayer is a very, very important part of God's program for us here on earth. It just is. It is to be offered, therefore, on behalf, as the text says, of all men. Meaning, nobody on earth is beyond the influence of our prayer. Nobody on earth. 
Now, folks, all men cannot literally mean every person on earth. You and I cannot pray literally for every person on earth. I don't even know most of them. Neither do you. Therefore, what does all men mean? I think it means all kinds of men and women. In other words, no particular people group is excluded from the influence of our prayer. And this certainly includes men and women in government who, as I mentioned, are emphasized in this verse. Kings and all who are in authority. Why are they singled out? I'll tell you why. Because you and I are prone to be disgusted with them and not pray for them. We mock them, criticize them. We're insolent and disrespectful for them. They ruin our day. They cause us to be cynical and all the rest. All along, we're obligated to pray for them, the ones we are least drawn to. So they are absolutely singled out here as a people group still subject to every form of prayer. So for what purpose are we commanded to do this? Well, the verse says, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So... Um, the prayers which we are obligated to offer secular authorities are meant to provide a rule of law so that there might be safety and security for its citizenry. How are we doing in many places in the United States today? The government, in my opinion, is abrogating its responsibility, it seems to me. It is not providing uh, enforcement of the rule of law, which is meant to do this very thing, guarantee a tranquil and quiet life, which we believers can live in all godliness and dignity. So Paul is not asking for us to pray for a tranquil life as an end in itself. It's a means to the end. Pray that the government would enforce the rule of law, protecting you as a Christian citizen to live out your Christ life. Why? So that people in America would hear the gospel and we would not be punished for it. And so Paul is encouraging. Hang on one second. Things were going so well. Oh, there you go. Paul is encouraging prayer for this. An orderly society in which the gospel will be able to reach everyone. Already in the United States, there are whole areas in which there are gospel-free zones. Like the public school system. I'll never forget years ago, I went on a mission trip sponsored by Sagemont Church to Russia. Russia, of all places. And when we went there, we didn't know what to expect. And uh, we went deep into Siberia somewhere. There was a medical school. And the medical doctor in charge of the medical school called off classes and obligated all the medical students to come and hear from these Americans who had a story to tell about Jesus. Then they let us go to orphanages where hundreds of kids were brought into a big assembly room we played with them, and we gave them gifts, and then shared the gospel with them. And then we took gospel tracts on street corners in Russia and shared the gospel absolutely freely. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, do you mean at the time? 
there was less restriction on gospel sharing in Russia than in the United States of America? Yes. The answer is yes. Therefore, Paul says, pray for all those in positions of authority. You don't have to pray that they would win the next election. You don't have to pray that their ungodly policies would be enforced and take root. You have to pray that God would so work in them that in spite of them, God still uses them to provide for us a tranquil and godly life, lived in all dignity in such fashion that we are free to live out the Christian life according to our core values, one of which is telling others about Jesus. So, folks, God has called us to impact the world. And I think the primary means, means by which we are to do so is through prayer. I'm getting real frustrated so are you. And frustration leads to anger. And anger comes out and irritability and all the rest. And all along, God sits enthroned and says, you're frustrated because your goals are not being accomplished. You feel helpless and put upon. But I have given you the privilege and obligation to pray. That's how you change the world. I can use Tiberius, Caesar, and Felix, and Festus, and whoever sits in the White House. I can use any of them to provide for you a tranquil and quiet life to be lived out in all godliness and dignity. Why are you not praying for all men and women regardless of party affiliation? So last night with you, I watched the debates and was disgusted and embarrassed and all the rest. And it occurred to me, I'm going to vote for one, but I must pray for all. You too. Make an intelligent, biblically informed vote. Uh, exclude the candidate you think will least represent uh, the core values of Almighty God, but you must pray for both. That's what it says in First Timothy. So, folks, as we draw to a close, these are the three responsibilities. This is what we owe the government. One, submit to the government. Two, pay taxes to the government. And finally, pray for the government. Now, uh, tonight, we have spoken about what we owe the government. Lord willing, next week if we get together, we will discuss what we do not owe the government. We do not owe the government absolute unconditional obedience. So am I saying there are cases in which we are obligated and authorized to disobey the government? Yeah, darn tootin'. And I'll show you next week exactly what those cases are. For now... Would you bow your heads with me, and in your quiet way, would you pray <laughs> for the government of the United States of America, the one we have now, the one we might have? Think of the one most repulsive to you. <laughs> pray for that one, that that one would if God intervenes, become less repulsive, 
more consistent with the biblical perspective, we can change people's hearts simply asking our Father to do so. So pray, would you? And then I'll close in just a minute. Oh, God in heaven, what we just did and what you have enabled us to do probably has accomplished more than we even know. It was good. It makes us to be less burdened. When we pray, that's what we do. We transfer burdens and concerns onto your much bigger shoulders. Oh, God in heaven, we can do the things anyone could do, but the thing uniquely entrusted to us as believers is intercessory prayer. You don't even hear the prayers of those who don't know you. You surely hear ours. So, Abba Father, thank you for listening us to us now. We welcome the idea of government. It's an institution, and really that's sacred because it's your idea. But it goes awry. And we could impact on it. We could bring it back into bounds that are acceptable by praying in those terms. I pray, oh God, whatever else we may do, registering, voting, all the rest, for sure. I pray whatever else we may do, we don't neglect to pray. And just as we're seeing someone or something on TV that is really distressing us, I pray you would cue us at that point to pray, like a light goes off. We could attack that situation. Otherwise, we keep it inside, and then we can't sleep. So I pray, oh God, you would help us to be praying much, much more. Oh God, who's going to be our next president? Each of us has ideas of who we think would be best, and it's legitimate to pray that that one would be the next president. But what's really important is that we say, oh God, what are you up to? What is your will? Your will be done. And it surely is your will, no matter who sits in that position of high authority. It surely is your will for that one to provide in exercise of the rule of law, us with a tranquil and quiet life so that we may live out our lives in godliness and dignity. That's what we pray to you, almighty God, king above all kings. Lord Jesus, thank you for hearing our prayer and for answering. This we pray in your name. Amen.